This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Professor Christina Gibson-Davis at Duke's Stanford School of Public Policy and Professor Heather D. Hill at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington to discuss their edited August issue of the Russell Sage Foundation's Journal of Social Sciences titled Wealth Inequality and Child Development, Implications for Policy and Practice. Professor Gibson and Hill, welcome to the program. Thank you so very much for having us. Yes, thank you. Okay, you're both very welcome. That first voice a listener heard is that of Professor Gibson Davis. The second voice you heard is that of Professor Hill. Both professors' bios are, of course, appear with this podcast post. Briefly on background, listeners are likely aware the U.S. has currently experienced historic levels of economic inequality. For example, per a June Federal Reserve study, the wealthiest 1% of Americans control approximately $42 trillion in wealth, compared to the bottom 50%, trillion. To the surprise of few, children represent the poorest age group. Nearly half of all children live in poverty or near poverty. A disproportionate percent of poor children are minorities, for example, 30% of black and 27% are Hispanic. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, children who suffer poverty experience numerous health harms through their life course, including infant mortality and chronic illnesses, amongst others, cardiovascular, immune, and psychiatric disorders, and related lifelong hardships, including unemployment, poor education, housing, and health care. These realities explain why Congressional Democrats are presently trying to pass legislation to, among other things, expand Medicaid, require Medicaid and CHIP to provide 12 months of continuous eligibility, and to provide pregnant women a full-year benefits postpartum, and finally permanently extend CHIP and extend child care tax credits. With me again to discuss their related recent article series, Wealth Inequality and Child Development, our professors Gibson Davis and Heather Hill. So with that as brief introduction or background, I do just want to ask, uh, not just, but I want to try to um, cover this substantive material um, basically by asking three questions, and those are first, an understanding of childhood wealth inequality, uh, largely the topic of this issue's first uh, four articles. Second, childhood poverty health effects are possibly largely the bone at all article. Uh, and third, policy implications are largely the CDA and EITC articles. And then finally, uh, also including the Jackson final article on Medicaid coverage effects on family wealth. Lastly, um, uh, be before we get to this, I do want to note that I will provide a link uh, to this issue for listeners, and I strongly encourage uh, uh, listeners read several or all of these 10 articles. I have to say, in my policy study for several decades, this is a, a excellent, very substantive work and important uh, uh, reading and learning. So with that, again, let's start with, um, if you could provide, I did provide some basic statistics, but if you could further help us understand uh, childhood wealth inequality, that'd be a great start. 
Sure, this is Christina. Um, I think the first thing to understand is we're not talking about income inequality. We're talking about wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. so just so uh, people are clear on the difference. Income is the money that you have coming into the household. So for most people, that's what they earn on their jobs. It's what economists refer to as the flow of resources or the money that's coming in. What we're talking about is, is related but different, which is wealth. Um, and for most people, which is your assets minus your debt. So for most people, their primary asset is their home. And then from that, you would subtract any credit card debt or medical debt or other kinds of debt. Um, and wealth is what uh, economists call a stock of resources or sort of the things that you have. And the difference between the two, I think, was really um, illustrated during the COVID-19 pandemic when, the, when, it first, when it first came to be, insofar as when people lost jobs, they had to rely on their savings or their wealth in order to sort of make ends meet and provide for their families. And so it's important to understand that in the U.S. context, while income inequality is extreme, wealth inequality is actually even more extreme. And moreover, among families with children, wealth inequality is more extreme than among the general population. So that was really why we wanted to take a look at wealth inequality, because we feel like a lot of the conversation centers on income, but wealth inequality is actually higher, and particularly for families um, with children, it's, it, it's worse than among the general population. Great. Uh, Heather, do you have a comment? Um, no, I think that the only thing I would add it to Christina's description of the difference is one of the things motivating um, this issue and why we brought, uh, you know, multidisciplinary authors together to think about this from different angles is that there's a lot more research about how income, <clears throat> income level, poverty, income inequality affect children than there is about how wealth affects children's health and development. And so we really wanted to both lay out a conceptual framework for how it might affect child health and development and also uh, you know, present some of these great uh, studies that actually examine different different aspects of, of child health and development. Thank you. If, if I could just add one sure. other sort of, if I could add just one other statistic, sort of, you mentioned the, in your introduction, the statistics about poverty, which are very sobering, um, and sort of disparities by income. But just to illustrate, so if you took, um, the, it's just to illustrate the disparities by wealth. If you took all the families with, with children and lined them up in the United States, the top 1% have about 43% of all the wealth that goes to families with children, whereas the bottom 50% have less than 0.01%. So again, the top 1% have 43%, the bottom 50% have less than 0.01%. That's basically the difference between 29.5 million on one hand and $300, on the other hand, in terms of wealth. So it's important just to understand the vast, vast disparities that exist in terms of wealth. And just to further add, that we care about this because we think that wealth matters for child well-being in ways sort of above and beyond in the ways that income matters for child well-being. So undoubtedly, income is important for children, but wealth also matters. So one way to think about this is that when wealth really determines, for example, where people live and their, their housing and their school choices, and that has an independent effect of um, their income. Wealth is also a marker of class status, and class is really important for determining the opportunities that kids have. And again, that's not reducible to their levels of income. 
We also think that uh, wealth provides sort of a psychological hedge for families that parents may feel less stressed if they know that they have savings in the bank. Um, and so they, and we know that parents who are less stressed make for better parents. So those are just a couple of ways in which we think that wealth may promote child well-being and wealth, why studying wealth merits attention. Thank you. And I, and I will say uh, in my notes, I recorded um, numerous statistics woven through all these 10 articles. Uh, Christina, you, in your opening, uh, you noted that, and I'll just provide this one, median wealth in 2019 of a white family with children was $64,000. For a black family with children was eight hundred dollars, um, and yeah. and these, so, these go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, and, and just to put those in terms that perhaps make more sense, what that ratio, what that difference means is that for every dollar of wealth owned by white families, black families have less than one cent. So just to put another, so it's one dollar versus one cent. So huge disparities by race and ethnicity. Right. I, this reminds me, I did an interview several months ago on a book by a Duke professor on uh, reparations, and he provided similar white-black uh, wealth and income uh, disparate uh, disparities. Um, and you do know uh, further, or one of the articles did know further, that the recession exacerbated this problem, or the Great Recession of 08, 09, uh, further widened uh, this gap. Uh, correct? Yes, that's, that's correct, in part because um, the Great Recession, the, the detrimental economic consequences of the Great Recession were disproportionately borne by families of color and disproportionately borne by younger individuals. So when you put those two things together, um, these wealth gaps that we're documenting now uh, have widened, widened during the Great Recession and actually have, have begun to narrow, but remain uh, very, very far apart. Right. One of the interesting things about wealth inequality is that even more than income inequality, it sort of allows you to to see the the path backwards into history of how historical policies and and inequality play out in in current inequality um, because wealth can be passed down between generations in a way that income really isn't. Um, you know, you, the wealth held now by families is a direct result of prior generations. And that means it's the direct result of, um, you know, hit very racist, uh, you know, housing policy in the past, uh, and, and other, um, and, and even the, back to the, to, to thinking about slavery and the sort of, um, you know, uh, inability for African-Americans to, to hold property and, and build businesses for so much of our history. So as you mentioned, the racial disparities in wealth have been documented for a while, actually, in part by Sandy Darity uh, at Duke um, and also Derek Hamilton at the New School and others. Um, and so here, what we wanted to do, uh, building on some of Christina's prior work, was to really focus on children and families with children. And what Christina had found in prior work, and we show again here, is that the wealth disparities um, by race and overall 
are worse for families with children. So right when families are wanting to invest in their children's future um, and and really, you know, making decisions about um, homes, schools, parenting that could have long term impacts, uh, we're seeing that that's when wealth inequality is really uh, the worst. Thank you. The uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Sandy Darity because he is the uh, gentleman I authored and his book recently published, uh, From Here to Equality. Uh, so you, you're generally this is a multi generational, mm-hmm. particularly when you throw in, of course, we won't get in the the inheritance tax uh, issue or policy of late. Uh, let's let's go to uh, and I'll just say um, again in the introductory piece uh, by you, Christina, wealth uh, levels for childhood for children is associated with, and, and this is pretty intuitive, education attainment, uh, positively associated with years of completing schooling, high school graduation, college attendance, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let's go to this, my second uh, overall general question, that is uh, childhood poverty health effects. Um, you do, uh, these are discussed in part, these are discussed rather in part uh, via the uh, Bowen, uh, I, I believe that was the lead author, Mm-hmm. on uh, the uh, body mass BMI uh, study. So can we, let's let's get into what that uh, article found and related uh, health effects, please. Sure. So they basically, what, what they were investigating was whether there was a correlation between wealth levels and uh, the body mass index of, of children. Um, and they were hypothesizing that the association between wealth and BMI um, could operate through a number of mechanisms. Um, people, parents who have low levels of wealth may have higher stress levels. Um, they may, uh, their household food budgets and spending habits um, may be different than people with higher levels of wealth. Um, the way their spaces are organized or the amount of sleep they may get um, may also be constrained if they have low levels of wealth. So they were sort of interested in, in testing that hypothesis. And in fact, they did find um, that wealth was correlated with BMI um, and that people with lower levels of wealth, parental, lower levels of parental wealth were correlated with um, higher levels uh, of, of BMI. So, so the point that they were trying to make was that um, wealth has very real repercussions on the physical well-being of children. Um, in perhaps in ways that we don't always necessarily think of um, immediately when we think of how wealth impacts child well-being. Thank you. And uh, one thing I would, yeah, and one, one thing I would add to that is just that they're finding, they, in addition to looking at this correlation, as Christina described, they also tried to understand, well, if there is a relationship between wealth and BMI, why? You know, what are the mechanisms? And their findings really supported this, this you know, model that Christina was describing earlier, where they found evidence both that wealth affects household spending on on food and education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sort of like you would imagine, income that it really affects the resources. But it, they also found evidence that that household wealth affects parent stress and that that parent stress accounted, um, uh, you know, for like 7% of the association between, between wealth and, and child BMI. So, 
you know, real evidence that something about wealth is protective of parents and possibly of children in terms of their experience of economic stress. Thank you. So, I think when, go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Which I was just going to add, I think makes sense to, to, to many people. Um, just the whole idea of having this psychological and sort of economic cushion of wealth really can help how parents feel and operate in, a, in sort of a day-to-day environment. Um, and again, just underscores the difference between, can underscore the difference between wealth and income. Yes, thank you. So uh, in the Bowen piece, the conclusion in part is that uh, this can shape uh, child BMI via wealth can help increase knowledge, self-efficacy, healthier food options, opportunity for physical activity, etc. All this is uh, fairly uh, intuitive. Um, you know, I did find, and I'll just sort of backtrack a bit, but the, the Conwell piece, I think, which is the subsequent piece in order, and this is the all wealth is not created equal. I found this particularly fascinating because even if you have a black and white family uh, comparatively of equal wealth, um, that does not translate, as the as the title suggests, to sort of uh, equality because the um, comparatively the black family, uh, for example, uh, has significant fewer assets and, and not in a good way, uh, fewer debt, lower holdings of liquid assets, etc. Can you explain? Yeah, I agree. This is a really, really fascinating study that tries to not just separately look at race um, and differences between racial groups and then, you know, wealth, and, and but brings those two together um, to understand how they affect children's school achievement. A couple things to note about what they're, what they're finding. So, one thing that we haven't mentioned is that we often talk about debt as something bad, but actually we know there are certain types of debt that are investments in future, mm-hmm. and, and namely that's educational debt, um, and it can also be housing debt. A mortgage, and, right, yes. Um, exactly. And so that complicates this picture of you know wealth inequality and the effects of wealth, and so some of what uh, Conwell and Yee are finding has to do with the, the actual types of wealth and debt that are held by different groups. And of course, there's been a huge increase in, in, um, in debt over time, particularly educational debt. Um, and that's not been equal across different groups. So that's some of what's going on. But what we also are seeing, which other studies are finding uh, in, 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 you know, outside of this issue, is that there are these ways in which race and class or race and resources interact in our society because we, you know, because of our, our history of racism. And so it may be that for a black family holding the exact same wealth or income, that their ability to use that wealth or income to really benefit their children may still be less than a white family with that exact same amount of money because of barriers to schooling and employment and all these things that are, that exist, you know, due to racism. Right. It's also worth noting that, you know, wealth, wealth is an, is an economic construct. And in the United States, that economic construct has a history of racism and structural inequality built into it. 
But at the end of the day, it's still just an economic construct. And so there are lots of things that are not necessarily going to be captured by that measure that could be explaining why, you know, equalizing wealth is not equalizing outcomes between black and white children. So it's it's very hard to uh, summarize or capture all the ways in which um, blacks are disenfranchised or economically marginalized uh, by systematic racism that exists in our society. And, and to think that that would all be captured by wealth is probably asking a little bit too much of, of, of one economic construct. Yeah, that's well put. I think that, you know, one takeaway, though, from that article is that if you equalized wealth, you would reduce racial ethnic gaps in children's achievement, you just wouldn't eliminate them, right? And so thinking about why it wouldn't eliminate them and what's missing, as Christina said, is important. Heather brings up a very important point, which is the takeaway from that article should not be we should not try to equalize wealth because we actually have some policy control over levels of wealth. And we it, it may be easier in some ways to enact policies that target wealth rather than these larger societal constructs that have that have plagued American society since its since its inception. So that is by no means a, um, an indication that we shouldn't do anything about wealth. And in fact, it may be useful in terms of policy and thinking about what, what we could expect if we were able to increase wealth, how that would affect uh, black, white, and Hispanic white differences in these child outcomes. Okay, good points. Uh, thank you for clarifying. Let's go to... Uh policy options that are um, in play uh, here. And the two prominent in, in this list, of course, are the articles concerning, as I noted, the child development accounts or CDAs. As the article uh, notes, uh, there are policies in seven states, uh, pretty wide ranging from California to Maine, and a wide ranging number of countries, everyone from the UK to uh, Israel, Taiwan and Uganda, which is an interesting, I think, collection. And then the example given is this um, uh, Oklahoma seed. The other is the uh, Michael Moore piece on uh, the earned income tax credit. So um, I'm interested in your comments on what the findings are relative, uh, takeaways relative to these two uh, contributions. Yeah. So first, I think it's worth mentioning that we have three papers in the issue that focus on policy and they're in no way, you know, a comprehensive summary sure. of what we know about policy and wealth. And in fact, one of the points that Christina and I make in the introduction is we don't really have a very coherent wealth policy in the United States or a coherent conversation about what wealth policy should be. And certainly there's a lot of different areas of policy that could affect wealth. Um, and so, so we can talk about that more later, but I just didn't want it to seem as if we were trying to, to cover all the, the relevant policies. But we do have these three great articles, one on CDAs, as you mentioned, and one on the EITC and another on Medicaid, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. Um, so starting with child development accounts, um, this is, uh, uh, an approach that actually has quite a bit of evidence and, and, um, some very rigorous evidence that, you know, used experiments or, or, or quasi experiments to try to understand the effects of families, um, being given, um, savings early in a child's life, um, that can then be used 
later for education and other things. Um, the, um, the piece of the nice job of summarizing the facts that CDAs have been shown to affect savings, which is great because that's its primary goal, mm-hmm. their primary goal, but also to affect, you know, mental health outcomes for parents, um, and to change parents' expectations for their children in t- terms of their, uh, college, you know, likelihood of going to college and things like that. So, so that's a, a, there's a nice body of literature there that really supports that approach. What hasn't been done yet for CDAs is really to scale them up to beyond a sort of a local or state, um, approach. Um, and the, um, and, and so the, the article in this issue is really trying to lay out, like, if you were to do that, what are some principles you want to start with? And then, Christina, do you want to take the EITC? Sure, sure. So just to just to say that the other two articles, the one on the EITC and the one on Medicaid expansion, are interesting because they're examining programs that really weren't designed to affect wealth levels per se. So, you know, CDA very deliberately, that, that is its target. Um, but both the EITC and the Medicaid op were, you know, designed with other intents. And so the question was, do these programs have positive spillovers, if you will, into how, um, into, into wealth? And the, the basic question is, is if you provide an additional cash benefit for tax break or tax credit through the EATC, or if you pay for healthcare as you do for Medicaid, does that then sort of shift what people are able to do and allow them to start building wealth? Um, and the answer in, in, in both cases is actually yes, that both fair and income tax credit and, the, and expanding Medicaid coverage does lead um, to increased savings and for, and for Medicaid also perhaps to um, home purchases and, and having enough money for a down payment for a mortgage. So I think one of the takeaways from those two articles is that even if you have these larger scale programs that aren't designed to affect people's levels of wealth, you can nevertheless um, affect people's wealth um, even if that wasn't the intent. I also just want to add, just going back for a second, if I could, to this whole policy question, I think part of the difficulty in in thinking about what should we be doing in terms of wealth inequality is we don't really know what the problem is, right? So there's this general sense of wealth inequality is too high, but we don't really know what level of wealth inequality we want. And then when we talk about wealth inequality, we're also somewhat talking about wealth deprivation, which is then the lack of wealth for people a particular part of the wealth distribution, namely those who don't have any wealth. And it could be that addressing wealth inequality may not do anything to address wealth deprivation or vice versa. So it's a really tricky policy issue to try and think about what should we be doing? And if we should be doing something, what's the goal of those policies? Yeah, and I would, uh, that's a great point, Christine. And I would add that the policies we describe, CDAs, EITC and Medicaid are all programs that serve lower income or lower wealth families. And so they have potential to improve, you know, wealth holdings um, for the most economically disadvantaged families, maybe reduce debt, add savings. But the wealth inequality, the increase in wealth inequality over time is driven primarily by, by growth at the very top of the wealth distribution and sort of 
this accumulation of wealth that we are allowing to happen among a very relatively small group of people. And none of these programs address that directly. That's much more directly addressed by tax policy. Right. And that begs, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Thomas Piketty's work, you know, R greater than mm-hmm. G. I, 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 I thought I might get some sense, although there's not a lot of research of any around this, is the UBI issue, universal basic uh, income. I will say just on the details on the CDA, uh, the conclusion is that, uh, as you know, it promotes mental health, improves parenting practices, child interaction, uh, contributes to healthy uh, child development. On the EITC, it is interesting. Uh, the macro conclusion um, increases wealth in middle child by around 4%, uh, increases credit card debt. You know, that is a positive. Uh, increases low-income families' position in the wealth distribution. However, and this leads to my uh, next question on the Medicaid program, uh, on the EITC research by Michael Moore and others finds that little evidence of a significant effect on the wealth held by black families uh, uh, does not do does not reduce substantial the wealth gap between black and white, um, and that mm-hmm. goes to since this goes to this last this Jackson piece fascinating on Medicaid and the listener probably knows after primary public school education is the second largest form of public sector investment in children, uh, not surprising. Uh, however, uh, this research draws a curious, interesting conclusion relative to um, who benefits or how the benefit of Medicaid is distributed. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to either one of you. I, I actually typed at length in my notes uh, the conclusions to this, so either feel free. One takeaway for me is that often the things we do to promote wealth for those who who don't have wealth or who have debt, um, they they seem to benefit um, not the sort of most economically disadvantaged or or it, they don't benefit the families who are struggling the most. It, it appears, but you sort of have to have you know perhaps enough financial stability and to be able to take advantage. So you can imagine for a family that's receiving the EITC and keep in mind the EITC is not just for poor families, but uh, up to, you know, sort of middle income families. Um, And you can imagine that to be able to use the EITC, the tax credit you get, once a year for savings, you probably have to be in a good enough financial position that you don't need it to pay that month's bills or to, you know, use for, for food in the next few months. So, so that's one thing I would take away is thinking about, you know, how do we help families who are struggling to get by month to month to save money when that's, it, that's going to be a hard choice to make? Yeah, I right. think that's, that's a really excellent point. I would also just say in terms of the Medicaid expansion, I mean, and that's what the, the Jacksonville paper was doing. They were taking advantage of expansions to Medicaid and then looking to see what the, what the effects on wealth were. It's also not clear if you expand Medicaid, who, who really benefits and if the types of families that took advantage of that, that, that benefit were, were white. And so it, it isn't totally clear from the Jacksonville paper that it didn't that it didn't advantage blacks if, in fact, it was whites that were able to take um, advantage of the expansion. Nevertheless, I think Heather's raises a really excellent point that you, since 
wealth is sort of a luxury, you will. You don't start accruing savings until after you have sufficient levels of income. It could just be that we're not seeing wealth effects of these programs on people who are, have lower levels of income. And then I would also circle back to our earlier discussion about uh, race differences and racism and past historical and current policies that really, you know, are, have structural racism embedded um, in them. So you could, you know, if, if, if a program like the EITC or Medicaid is freeing up resources, but black and white families don't have the same access to buying a home or to other types of investments, then you're not going to see the, the same payoff for those two families and you're not going to see a reduction in the race disparities. So that is, that may be the lasting um, and ongoing effects of, of other barriers that aren't about just how many resources you have. Mm-hmm. I guess I would just also conclude, conclude by saying that I think it's a little, you know, these are really good papers, but they're sort of the first attempts in this field. And so I think we just need the more work on how wealth operates in the lives of these families and how those, um, how wealth is contextualized and realized depending on your race and ethnicity. And I would just say we're, we're just beginning to understand that now. Well, well, point well taken, certainly. So let me just, for the listener, uh, I'll just read the, uh, to be explicit, I'll just read the conclusion. This is, again, the Jackson paper. We find that on average, greater state-level Medicaid access is associated with a larger total amount held in savings, retirement, and mortgages. Okay, that's what we would hope. However, the positive effects on family wealth among the full sample are driven by benefits for more highly educated non-Hispanic white families. It goes on to state Medicaid expansion increases account assets among non-Hispanic white families, but had little effect on accounting assets among non-Hispanic blacks and Hispanics. Um, so just to be explicit on that, um, we, we've, we've danced around this a bit. Uh, we've used the phrase uh, structural racism and related others. So this is my uh, last question. Um, in, in reading all this, I, I can't say I was uh, completely uh, surprised um, that we see these uh, effects. Um, but it, it begged for me the question, and I did an interview on critical race theory uh, not too long ago, but it did uh, 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 beg the, the sort of the you know, starting with Derek Bell's work. Uh, this issue, mm-hmm. and of course, the, the you know critical race is, is asks the question: To what extent is uh, racism permanent? Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, Bell's own writings were about uh, you know desegregation just led to other forms of desegregation, largely. Um, so, what's relative to trying to address this under you know? We, of course, we have this long history we have to deal with, um, or try to continue to deal with. What's your overall take um, concerning this research on wealth uh, and its effect on health and and trying to do uh, a more intelligent, take a more intelligent, or how can we take a more intelligent approach to policy as it relates to um, uh, having wealth more strongly correlate, let's just say, to improvements in uh, childhood health? So I'll give my two cents, which um, are that one of the um, one of the features of wealth that makes it, I think, so um, 
just so impactful for, for families and the experience of children is the fact that it's intergenerational. And so, as I said, I think it, it gives us a fuller picture of that, those ongoing structural um, factors that have limited specific people based on color of skin from, you know, gaining a, a stronger foothold hold in the economy. And so while that's, that's depressing and, and, the, and the differences by race are really staggering, I also think it means that the, the promising part of it, the optimistic part of it, is that if we could change um, how we think about wealth now, then, then changes and allowing families to, to build wealth who, and to reduce debt who, who hadn't done that before, then that means the ripples going forward could really also be long-lasting and multi-generational. So I think there is something hopeful there. Um, I think we have to tackle how we handle wealth in our tax system. Um, we even just 10 years ago, we um, were taxing, you know, corporate profits and inheritances and capital gains at much higher rates than we are right now. Mm -hmm. So we have to confront that. That won't address necessarily the racial and ethnic disparities, but it will, I think, start to address the broader wealth inequality. And then, you know, we really don't tackle this in this issue, but there are calls, as you mentioned earlier, for reparations that would be directed specifically at African Americans or other groups who have been historically marginalized from the economy. And you might think of those as, as really um, very targeted approaches to addressing racial ethnic gaps in wealth. Thank you. I would just also add that on the optimistic note, while racial disparities in wealth in you know, the past 50 years have always been, been large, They've not always been as large as they are now. So we actually do have some control or we could make different choices that would probably, at least at the margins, narrow the black-white wealth gap. And I actually do think tax policy is a good place to start because we know when tax in, in the past, we've made different choices about tax policies that the economic growth is enjoyed more broadly and is enjoyed by people of a 90% of the wealth distribution and the bottom 90% of the wealth distribution, not just those at the very top. And when you have that sort of broad economic growth, we actually have narrow black-white differences in wealth. Again, they've never been small, but they've been smaller than they are now. So on an optimistic note, I don't know that we have to think of these differences as fixed. I think they can be addressed. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have the political will to address them, but I don't think they have to be, they're not etched in stone. They're not written in stone. Right, correct. Not inexorable, right. So we're at our time. Uh, so I do want to thank you uh, genuinely for this overview of these 10 excellent uh, articles and you're assembling these. I'm sure this was uh, an effort over the last couple of years, particularly having to work through this uh, during a pandemic. So again, uh, Professor Gibson Davis and Professor Hill, I thank you for your time. It's genuinely appreciated. And I'll post a link to these again uh, with this audio recording. I wish you the best of luck on furthering this work. Thank you so, so much. Very much for that. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, 
To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.